Welcome to episode 82 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. Now, it's no secret to regular listeners that I am a massive fan of Regent's Park Open Air Theatre, set in the heart of the park's inner circle. This summer marks its 90th season, and I suspect that many of our listeners had an early experience of this magical theatre as a schoolchild. I certainly did when we were all taken to see A Midsummer Night's Dream. Since then, I must have been dozens of times, and it never seems to rain. The trees are always majestic, the cocktail's delicious, and the whole evening evening is a delight from start to finish, so much so that I took my daughter there in May on her 18th birthday to see Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde has now finished its run, but it was a rip-roaring success, taking the 2001 Reese Witherspoon movie about an LA girl going to Harvard and completely updating it into a superbly realised, energetic and fun musical fable for our contemporary world. And today we're going to be talking about the two next productions this summer. They couldn't be more different. One is 101 Dalmatians and the other is Antigone. So we're delighted to have with us the theatre's artistic director and the joint chief executive, one person, Timothy Sheeder, and the actress Kate Fleetwood. Kate is a Tony and Olivia Award nominee and stars in the Amazon Prime series The Wheel mm. of Time. And in this summer she's going to be playing Cruella de Vil in 101 Dalmatians. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Well, good morning and lovely to have you on the podcast. Now, Tim, you've been with Regent's Park Theatre since 2007. So clearly you are as in love with it as I am. And you've brought us some fantastic productions over the last few years. The phenomenal Peter Pan for the First World War Centenary, Jesus Christ Superstar, and the concert version in lockdown that was beyond brilliant. Carousel last year, I could go on and on and quite often do. But can you start by telling our listeners about the theatre's history and what makes Regent's Park such an extraordinary and inspiring theatre? Yes, it's nice to know that you're such a such a fan, Charlotte. That's you're making our jobs a little bit easier this morning. <laughs> yeah, so the, we're celebrating our 90th anniversary this year. Um, and it's always wonderful to look at the archive photographs and see the, the journey of the development of the infrastructure of the theatre. And there's something so completely charming about the deck chaired first performances when it, everything was flat, there was no architecture, there was no formal seating. There was just a circle of turf and audiences brought their own deck chairs and sat on unraked lawn and watched Shakespeare because it, it was Shakespeare for principally and solely Shakespeare in fact for many 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 years um yeah so for 90 years there's been some form of drama in Regent's Park which is kind of amazing isn't it to kind of uh, an amazing thing that you we can gather in um a royal park outside and listen to and engage in and connect with stories and even more so now after we've all been socially distanced for so long you know to the the i know we've been back now for a while but to me every time i gather to listen to music or listen to stories i i feel very grateful that we're allowed to do that still and and don't take it for granted there's something very special about it being outside i guess because um some of the traditional barriers are removed i mean literally the walls and the ceiling so perhaps some of the formalities that some people might think are associated with going to the theatre are not present so it's perhaps a little a little bit more accessible and there's something for me about the connectivity and the shared experience between performer and audience that we start the show in shared light 
if it's a matinee, then the whole show is in shared light, that we can see each other. There's a honesty about that contract. It isn't kind of lights go down and we forget that anybody else is there and the actors can't see us and we can't see each other. We know why we're there. We're all buying into this wonderful myth that we're um, going to go on a flight of fancy and imagination together. And that if you're attending an evening performance that you kind of do experience that uh, nightfall or the, or the twilight, we go through the journey of twilight into darkness. Even me, who kind of has been there for so long and um, sits through, you know, 12, 13, 14 performances in a row during previews, when you come back from the interval and the light has palpably shifted, it's always a surprise and, and never fails to kind of capture my imagination and, and make me excited. Tell us just a bit about some of the historical highlights because they are extraordinary. I mean, Ralph Fiennes made his debut there, didn't he? And George Bernard Shaw wrote a play specially for it. I mean, it's just for a small theatre, it's really punched above its weight in its history, hasn't it? Yeah, the George Bernard Shaw connection is quite interesting, isn't it? And I don't know very much about it other than beyond Shakespeare in the early days, Bernard Shaw was what was the most performed playwright, which is, you know, not something you're going to hear said very often nowadays. Um, uh, and particularly, you know, sure, very wordy, very long constructed sentences, not easy to deliver that material outside um, on a breezy evening. Um, but yeah, he, he, he did write a play. I, I don't know about his connection. I don't know why he was drawn to, to Regent's Park. Maybe it was a personal connection, maybe he lived close by, but uh, it, it, it's certainly something, it's certainly fantastic, isn't it? I agree, it really is fantastic. And turning to you now, Kate, it must be great to be joining such a long line of incredible actors who've worked at Regent's Park. Uh, I mean, I've never worked there before, but I have worked outside before at the Globe. And I know every time I go to Regent's Park to see a show, I, like Tim, am, I'm really captured by that, that sense of night falling throughout the evening. And there's a sort of liminal sort of thing that happens with the audience. And... And I, I think as an actor, you should always try everything if you can. And so it was always on a bu my bucket list to work there. And um, so when the opportunity arose, I grabbed it really because I just, I just have always wanted to work there, come rain and shine. I've seen things there during massive downpours and they've just been as exciting and as, as gorgeous and, and memorable as hot, balmy evenings. So they... Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm up for the ride, if you know what I mean. So I I wanted to do it. And how's it? How are you approaching the enigmatic figure of Cruella Deville? <laughs> her complex and nuanced character. <laughs> oh yeah, well I'm trying to make her a complex and nuanced, but but I I think I I think the truth is she's one of the best villains written and uh, is iconically so, and so I'm just going for villain. And I think there's been a lot of Disney have certainly been sort of attacking the idea of the origin story of these characters, a lot of these iconic villains and giving them some kind of redemptive arc. Mm. And I've sort of decided we have sorry, decided as a group that as a creative team that we are sort of missing the the old fashioned villain. And we and I certainly as a performer want to investigate that's the nature of a villain and how that how that affects an audience and there's a catharsis there that villains produce and provide for audiences and certainly children as well and I I think we all need a monster under the bed 
because there's a catharsis attached to that. And, and so we've embraced that in our production. There, there are, you know, I, I as an actor have to have a backstory. And of course we do discuss that. And so she's not, she's not I don't play her like, you know, a, just a two dimensional cartoon because I have my own backstory, but it's, that's my job to do that. And it's, it's the audience's job to fill in those gaps. And I think sometimes we can overfill as dramaturgs and, and we need to allow that the audience have space to project their own um, ideas of what that is onto a character. And there's a space for that. We don't need to fill in all the dogs. <laughs> and how are they going to play the dogs? It's, the good, it's a good question, Ed, because that was the, the kind of the riddle for me that needed to be solved before as a, as a producer, we signed off on whether we would do 101 Dalmatians. Inevitably, they are puppets in this world where um, we are embracing puppetry in mainstream theatre in a way that perhaps we haven't previously to Warhorse. Um, so the two main dogs, Pongo and Purdy, are both two-person operated puppets. Um, and then... Uh, Big dogs. Uh, they're quite they are they're slightly oversized it has to be said yes they're slightly larger than than your standard dalmatian but it's it's a big <laughs> it's a big theater um and they and they look fine next to next to the uh, next to the adults but yeah they are quite big um and very spotty and then we have four children that are playing the four named characters the four main puppies that that drive the action oh, wow. in the second act um, so there, there, there will be a hundred and one dogs on stage for one scene. No, um, uh, <laughs> I mean not real dogs. A hundred and one things that are manifesting or, or channeling Dalmatian, um, and we're being very specific that at that moment you will see if you're busy counting a hundred and one parts of a Dal of Dalmatians. Um, and then there's a little surprise in the last five minutes if it all comes to fruition of, of who and what the 101st dog is. Oh, how interesting. I wonder if it's <laughs> going to be Dylan from Downing Street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think what's so amazing about this theatre is, is the variety. So, I mean, just, just take this summer, you know, you've had the extraordinary Legally Blonde that was, uh, I mean, just tell me what made you decide to put that on? Because you worked with the amazing director, Lucy Moss on that, didn't you? Who did uh, Six, the musical. And it was absolutely terrific because it really did bring it right up to date. Um, yeah, I I did not know Legally Blonde, the musical, till I was researching uh, a project for that slot. I obviously knew the Reese Witherspoon movie. Uh, read the musical and thought it was brilliantly written, incredibly tight, very well structured. Every song was earned. The dialogue is sparse and economic, but incredibly witty and drives the plot forward. Um, and I thought, who might be able to bring this, as you say, Charlotte, into the 21st century? Because it's so spot on, the movie, isn't it, when mm. the movie was written? But it's as dated as, as you know, we, uh, recent his history dates as much more than, than uh, yes. ancient history, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Um, so I was very keen that this would be brought up today and definitely through, made through the lens of a female um, creative team. Uh, so I, I, yeah, my mind very quickly went to Lucy Moss and she took a little bit of persuading because despite the um, ferocious success of Six, she is still very young. Um, and is she? Is, How old is she? How interesting. She's only about three how old 28 yeah i mean she's Gosh. very you know it's this is the only the second thing she's ever directed wow um, and and it's obviously far bigger than six in terms of 
managing who's on that stage. So Lucy was just uh, incredibly brave and inclusive in her casting process and, uh, and, and found this amazing group of largely Gen Z people. I don't think we've ever had such a young ca cast across the board on that stage before. Actually, that's not true, Lord of the Flies. And, but in terms of one of those big musicals. Um, so she found this uh, Gen Z cast who who have completely, as you say, made it their own and, 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 and wonderfully completely brought that audience with them. Um, I'm sure. And what do you mean when you say every song was earned? This is great lingo that I want to adopt. <laughs> well, you whenever know... I go to a musical, I want to leave saying to whoever I go with, do you know what, every song in that musical is in. <laughs> you know, I think we... you said that about Cabaret, Ed, when we went to Cabaret. Together. I did. Every did song in that. Cabaret you did say is that. Really <laughs> you know when you go to a musical and you sit down and you think, oh, God, they're singing again, <laughs> and what are they singing about, and why are they singing, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to the, you know, the scene launches you fantastically into this song, and the song... Takes you, oh, takes I you out Hamilton, of I think in Hamilton, every song is earned. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I grew up doing musicals. You'd be, it'd be quite hard to find a lot of young actors, actors from their youth that, who are always, that's sort of often in this country, how actors begin their career. They'll be in youth theatres doing lots of musicals. So I often did lots of musicals as a kid. And I was a child actor at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford. But yeah, no, I love, I, 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 I Doing a musical is, you will never have as much fun on stage as doing a musical. And I think that's one of the things I'm really excited about, like Tim was mentioning, being able to see the audience. You know, there's a kind of, I felt that at the Globe as well. There's, you know, it, it's quite an act, a, a sort of a political act to be able to speak to the audience. Like, you, you, there's an engagement there in the daylight. I love that. No one's ever said that to me before. That's a good one. There is an act. You know, it's a political. It is a political act, and depending on, the, particularly in the globe, but in 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 any outdoor space, you you can see one another, and there's a there's a communion there, and it's a and you can't hide from that. You can't, as a performer, you have you the the need. I guess are the earning the songs, but when you when you can see an audience, you know it makes direct address really those soliloquies in any any of Shakespeare's plays or how you relate to the audience if you can see them makes it all, all the difference. And what if you can't yeah. see them? Well that's the that's that's the actor's imagination has to really imagine that they can speak to the audience. I remember when we did Jesus Christ Superstar and Declan Bennett that played oh, Jesus. So do I. Oh, I went so many times. <laughs> oh. I, 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 as you know it was kind of you know directed around a kind of gig culture um uh, vision and I and when he sang Gethsemane, which was essentially a soliloquy between him and God, and the audience was God, I said, "Gosh, is it really cringe on the matinee because you can see everybody and it's just you at the front with your guitar?" And he said, "It's my favourite performances because I can totally connect with all those people." That's so interesting. And the other thing about Regent's Park is that you're talking earlier about you know it used to be deck chairs. Whoever built that auditorium is a genius because there's no such thing as a bad seat. No, there aren't. Um, and we're adding some seats at the moment uh, after this season. We're adding a couple of layers up, to, a couple of rows up to the back. So increasing the number of uh, accessibly priced tickets. Oh, brilliant. So, so let's talk now about um, Antigone. Is Antigone a musical? No, Antigone is no. definitely oh, not I'd a musical. Be, I'd be very However, shocked if it were. <laughs> it's not a musical, but there is, it's a Greek, a <laughs> it's a Greek play. So there is a chorus, there is a Greek chorus. And when one of the, it's a, it's a good question actually, because when we sat down, it's the first Greek play we've done, surprisingly for an amphitheatre. 
Um, perhaps not surprisingly for box office, because, you know, Greek plays are not the easiest sell in 2022. But the first <laughs> one of the first things that we talked about was the chorus and how we would present the chorus on a massive stage. Very different to how you might present the chorus. You know, one of the last Greek plays I saw was actually Kate playing Medea at, uh, at, at uh, the Almeida with two or three people as the chorus in a very small, intimate space. This is a very big space. And who, as we know, who would the chorus be? So, you know, in the Greek amphitheatres, the, chor the choruses were sung and danced. Uh, and so we've had a lot of those conversations and... They are not going to be sung, but they are spoken word and they are uh, they do have a very strong rhythm to them and they are going to be staged. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's um, Antigone, uh, played by Sophocles, reimagined, completely reclaimed, really, by um, playwright Inua Elams, um, famous for his production of uh, his play of uh, Barbershop Chronicles at the National Theatre and then went all around the world. And he has uh, transposed or taken the, the, the Greek myth and set it in modern day London. Um, and Creon, who is the uh, head of the royal house, Greek royal household at the time of the play, is the home secretary uh, and a home secretary who is British South Asian. The story is uh, is very violent and very emotional and very powerful, the Greek myth. And he has managed over a lot of work, a lot of workshops, a lot of research and many drafts to create a version of this myth that absolutely does transpose to a political world that we're familiar with. I mean, we did start writing this play before the present incumbent of the Home Office was in place and indeed the previous <laughs> one. Um, so it is, it is, you know, whether he's prophetic, I don't know. But we, yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's quite far from 101 Dalmatians. I think you've got to shake it up and have Antigone the musical and 101 Dalmatians the Greek tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kate, Kate's Cruella is quite mythic. She is, exactly. Mythical. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, yes. I mean, I always approach all the characters similarly. I mean, the form and the style is always different and movable, but, but I approach all the characters in the same way as, you know, what is their want? What is their fear? What is their, what is their tragedy? And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe there are, yes, I mean, Medea kills her children and, and uh, Cruella <laughs> skins puppies, but you know, they're, they're not, they're not Two always. sides of the same coin, it might be. <laughs> yes. Also, Kate, I have to break it to you, you won't be skinning puppies, you don't win. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't win. No, have you, have you got fabulous costumes? I do, Charlotte. I do. In fact, I had a costume fitting the other day that took two hours, and we only got through one of the costumes. Yeah, you've got another one. Ten thirty. I, I know. I've got two. I've got them all week. Actually, a row, a row of costume fittings. Yeah, I always. I love. I love it when I look and look at a rail before a show, and I can see all the costumes for the rest of the show that spans the, the you know the performance coming up, and I think by the end they'll all be drenched in sweat. And of course, I haven't thought about the weather because it's, you know, I remember seeing Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, in the summer, that's one thing. But I remember seeing it, I think, possibly the last show and it was a chilly night. And I thought, oh, this is a whole different thing from playing it in June. <laughs> of course, Kate will have the opposite because she'll be in I'm fur, be in fur. fur so, yes, in August. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I know, but I'm used to that. Filming is like that. You, know, you can be filming... You know, I was—I remember filming uh, an episode of a uh, season of Victoria, 
and we were in a we were in a Buckingham Palace was built in an old air, airport hangar for planes and I was in full Victorian garb sitting next to a coal fire and it oh. was a hundred and hundred and three degrees in that speech. Oh. <laughs> oh my god, my god. But uh, we have we have we have tips and little tricks up our sleeve to keep us cool. So the final question is slightly predictable is how is the world of theatre post-COVID? How are you all feeling? How's morale? How's optimism? But I'm just so thrilled to be back in the room with a group of um, really creative young performers and a creative team. And and we miss it. You know, we've all missed that. And, uh, um, we're, you know, we're hopefully we'll get through. That's it's every day. Every day is a new day with COVID, isn't it? And uh, and it's still affecting the, com the country and it's, it's still affecting the, the the uh, industry but every day we just hope we'll get through the next day and uh, keep going <laughs> yeah it, I mean it, for theatre I don't think we are post-covid yet it, it no. you know I had covid last week so I missed a five days of rehearsal we haven't done a, a full I day I can't of... believe we're risking everything on a zoom call with you, <laughs> you could, I'm free now I, I, I've done my five days but for the last four four weeks we haven't had a full company and there are three people off with covid at the moment you know we can't we can't work from home we have to be at work yeah. to do our jobs and so while the rest of the world is adjusting and adjusting rather fantastically aren't aren't we we aren't we it's it's really tough but we're much, but we're we've weathered that that massive storm now so you know this 90th season is is ambitious for us at regent's park but we aren't, we are still needing to build up our reserves and be in the financial, financially stable place that we're in before. So I don't think we're out of the woods, but we are much more fleet of foot. And as Kate says, really positive, really grateful, really grateful to go into that room and see everybody there and even more grateful to audiences for for coming back and, and you know, and wanting to, to, to participate in live theatre. Well, also, I think if anyone is inventive, it's you, because what you did in lockdown with that concert performance of Jesus Christ Superstar that I thought was almost better, you know, when they all came on in their masks and everything. I mean, it was just so wow. You should, and, Tim, you should put uh, Charlotte on the board. I know, <laughs> shouldn't we? Anyway, enormously good luck with uh, the summer ahead. And Thank, thank you, you so much. I will see you at 101 Dalmatians. Thank you. I will nice wave at you, Kate. I, I think I've got very good seats. <laughs> I'll, I'll find my, you. I'll, I'll find my, you. I'll take my daughter and bring her backstage. Uh, yes, yeah. I'll sniff you out. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both Great. so much. Thank you very thank much. You. Nice to meet you. Bye-bye. Bye. Before we go, we wanted to mention that the wonderful Cheltenham Music Festival is coming up again on the 8th of July. It runs until the 16th and features artists like Isata and Sheku Kanemason and Anushka Shankar, as well as the BBC New Generation artists and a finalist from the 2022 BBC Young Musician Competition. We did cover the festival last year and are glad to report that you can still lie down in Gloucester Cathedral for a classical mixtape session, as well as hear lots of wonderful new music as usual. There'll be a world premiere by Andrew Chen for the Gould Piano Trio, and one concert includes two world premieres, one by composer Claire Victoria Roberts and another by Connor Mitchell. He's written a cycle of love songs based on the love letters between Benjamin Britten and tenor Peter Piers. So do make sure you book your tickets for that. Now, next week, we're going to be heading away from the Cotswolds to the other side of the country and to Norfolk to talk to Jake 
Fines before anyone asks. Yes, he is indeed part of the Fines dynasty and is the brother of actors Rafe and Joseph, but he's on an entirely different mission to nurture and preserve our countryside from his base on Norfolk's magnificent Hokum estate. My imagination was caught when I heard him on the radio saying he considered himself to be the luckiest man in the world to have the responsibility for caring for the land around him. So we've tracked him down and we're going to be talking to him about his book, Land Healer, How Farming Can Save Britain's Countryside. You can find us on countryandtownhouse.com. We're now .com rather than .co.uk because we're so global. You'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest with interior designer Carolinette, plus the latest edition of Country and Townhouse and the Great British Brands newsletters. Meanwhile, we love your feedback, so please do keep it coming to me at charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. See you next week. Bye.